Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. Hi, and welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. Today, we're sharing one of the talks from the recent Absite Live Highlights Conference. This talk is all about pediatric surgery. More information about the Absite Smackdown Live Highlights Conference is in the links beneath. So now, let's get to it. The Absite Smackdown Podcast now has a live review. Get your access for the only review conference that works best with your schedule. On call, can't travel, no time for an expensive hotel room or plane ticket, we've got you covered. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and select latest news to learn more and sign up today. Hi guys, welcome. This is the pediatric surgery talk, so let's get started. The Absite Smackdown Podcast, bringing you the best of your Absite review. All right, so first things first about pediatric surgery is embryological development. So the medial umbilical ligament, remember, is an obliterated umbilical artery. You'll see that. It's a great pimp question in the operating room. It's also a great question for the Absite itself. The median, the median umbilical ligament is the obliterated uragus. And remember that um, our gut develops from three different places. So everything, lungs, esophagus, stomach, pancreas, and the first portion of the duodenum proximal to the impula of water is all foregut. Everything from the impula to the first to the last third of the transverse colon is midgut. And then the distal third of the transverse colon all the way to the anal canal is hindgut. All right, so if you attended my uh, trauma talk, you'll remember me talking about pediatric vital signs and how they differ greatly from adult trauma, uh, adult vital signs, excuse me. So um, pediatrics tend to be a lot more tachycardic than um, adults. So the younger they are, usually the higher their heart rate tends to be at resting. Remember that prematurity is is defined as any birth before the um, gestational age of 37 weeks and a low birth weight is anything less than two and a half kilograms at birth. Next. All right, so here's a development um, as well as important things about the system. So in the pulmonary system, remember that alveoli start to rise at approximately week 24. And um, from six months to six years, infants will breathe mostly through their noses and not through their mouths. And then actually the pulmonary system is not fully developed until the age of eight years old. In terms of the renal system, remember that adequate urine output for an infant is only about two to three mils per kilogram per hour. Um, And then there's very little cardiac output that goes into the kidneys, especially in neonates. Whereas in the adult world, about 25% of cardiac output will go to the kidneys. Uh, Next. The immune system um, is actually very smart. So breastfed infants will actually get IgA from the breast milk and IgG is uh, the only thing that crosses the placenta. So um, that's a great question that they love to ask about what's actually crossing the placenta and what the infant or the neonate is getting from mom. And it's usually the IgG. So in fluid resuscitation in an infant, almost like how we do in the adult, we follow the 4-2-1 rule. So the, for the first 10 kilograms, um, you give four mil per cake per hour. For uh, the second 10, you give two mils per cake per hour. And then for each kilogram after, you give one mil per cake per hour. And that's a great way to calculate maintenance fluid for these infants. Um, you usually start off actually with D50 
um, or sorry, D5 quarter NS for maintenance. Um, and then initial bolus for the, for pediatric trauma patients are 20 mils per kg of um, fluids. And then if you're going to give blood, it's actually 10 mils per kg. Next. <coughs> so coanaltrasia and torticollis are um, rare, but could get you a couple of questions on your abscess. So coanaltrasia is usually common in twins. It is a posterior near occlusion. Um, and the retractions are, are related to respiratory distress. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Torticollis um, is due to the fetal position in utero, usually due to trauma of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. About 70% of these actually resolve by the age of eight months. Um, and the treatment is just physical therapy, kind of just straightening out the neck to, to try to equal out um, and balance the sternocleidomastoid. Next. Thyroglossal ducts cysts are actually very heavily tested. I've seen at least a couple of questions. Um, so important things to know about these are it's a mass in the neck. It's always in the center of the neck and it moves up and down uh, with tongue protrusion. It has to do with the embryological development um, of the thyroid and the tongue. So the important thing here is knowing the cyst trunk procedure and the cyst trunk procedure actually involves removing the cyst and the entire tract all the way up to the base of the tongue, all you know, known as the frame and cecum, as well as the central portion of the hyoid bone. Um, next. Branchial clefts, very heavily tested. They love to talk about branchial cleft anomalies, where things come from, especially the third and fourth branchial uh, clefts. So anomalies are usually lateral neck masses, um, whereas the thyroglossal cysts are usually central neck masses. And what you'll usually see is on the lateral neck, there is drainage from a small pit associated with it. Um, usually it's a clear fluid that comes out. So MRI or CT will show you that cystic mass. And then the treatment is resection of the mass, I'm sorry, of the cyst and the tract as well. Um, remember to be very weary because that is a very high real estate area where the carotid runs um, as well as several branches and muscles. Next. Yeah, so cystic hygroma. So uh, very classically transilluminates and is compressible. Um, it is benign. And it can actually be picked up prenatally on the prenatal ultrasound. However, a CT or an MRI may show the lesion and it may actually extend very deep into the chest or mediastinum. So surgical injection, uh, surgical um, excision is usually indicated, um, or you can inject it with a sclerosing agent. If it becomes infected, you have to delay that resection by approximately three weeks. So you're not digging into an, ex uh, uh, an infected field. Next. Tracheoesophageal fistulas. I know I've seen a couple at least so far in my pediatric surgery rotation. Um, they love to test the vactral association. So 10% of TE fistulas will be associated with vactral, which are vertebral, anal anomalies, cardiac anomalies, as well as the tracheoesophageal fistulas, of course, renal anomalies, and limb anomalies. There are uh, five types of tracheoesophageal fistulas. They um, Type A is an esophageal atresia with no fistula, so the esophagus, a portion of the esophagus is missing. Type B will have the esophageal atresia, except the proximal portion of the esophagus has a fistula to the trachea. Type C, also the atresia, however, the distal portion of the esophagus has a fistula to the trachea. So um, B and C differ in that B has the proximal portion with a fistula and a C, the C type has the distal portion with a fistula. Type D 
is the atresia with proximal and distal portion of the esophagus, each having a fistula to the trachea. And then type E um, is nothing like them. It's actually the esophagus is in continuity, although it can be narrowed. And then a fistula is present to the trachea. So this is what we call the H-type tracheoesophageal fistula. Um, surgery usually involves extrapleural thoracotomy, and you want to stay extrapleural in order to avoid pleural contamination. If the anastomosis leaks or if there's contamination, you want to stay out of the pleural space. Next. Um, so a couple of the lung issues that they like to talk about are congenital lobar emphysema, which is basically air trapping that causes lung hyperextension, I'm sorry, hyperexpansion. Um, you can very easily diagnose this or misdiagnose this as a pneumothorax and place a chest tube in there. However, that will lead to a pretty decent decompensation in, in the patient. The other thing is a CCAM or congenital cystic adamantoid malformation, and that's a communicating cyst at the terminal bronchial level. And these cysts can actually become infected and trap air. Um, and then to treat them, you actually just resect them. Um, they do have a malignant regeneration potential. The Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. I love to test. So, um, these do not communicate with the trachea or the bronchi. They actually usually present as an infection. They look very scary, especially on imaging. There is um, arterial supply as well as venous drainage from both of these. So intralobar uh, is the most common type and drains through the pulmonary veins. Um, extralobar will drain through the azagous veins. And I've seen that as a question. Um, and the way to get rid of these is also a resection. And you make sure you have to ligate the arterial um, entry first and then do a lobectomy. Next. So the um, mediastinal tumors are also very heavily tested. So knowing where the tumor is in relation to the mediastinum will actually give you a great clue as to what kind of tumor it is. So, so in the posterior mediastinum, you can have a neurofibroma, ganglionoma, meningioma, or neuroblastoma, excuse me. In the anterior mediastinum, you're most likely going to have a lymphoma, germ cell tumor, thymoma, or thyroid cancer. And then the medial middle medial steinum uh, usually is a lymphoma, teratoma, brachiogenic cyst, or cardiogenic cyst. Next. Um, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. So we always talk about the two uh, common ones, and that's the morgagni hernia and the botulic hernia. So the morgagni hernia is actually more rare, um, and it is usually the anterior hernia, whereas the botulic hernia is more common, and it's usually posterior. Survival can be as high as 80% that specialize in this condition, but generally it's, uh, you know, 50% survival with uh, babies born in this. Usually, even though there was only one side that's herniated, usually both lungs will have a dysfunction. Most of these babies will have a significant respiratory distress in the first few hours of life. Um, and then don't forget to look for other anomalies as 80% of these patients will have additional anomalies. Next. Pyloric stenosis, very, very common. I know I've seen it a lot on my pediatric surgery rotation and they love to test. There's so many questions they can get out of pyloric stenosis. So obviously most commonly in males, actually four to one ratio. And what the baby will present with is non-bilious projectile vomiting. Remember that the classic sign is this olive sign. And then the classic laboratory finding is hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis or the paradoxical acid urea. Um, so 
the way to manage these is first you have to correct this hypovolemia and electrolyte disturbance. So normal staling first and then D5NS with 10 of K for maintenance. Um, do not initially bolus with potassium containing fluid. Um, uh, it's because these babies will get hyperkalemia pretty fast. And then after the baby is resuscitated adequately, then you take the baby for a pylorum myotomy. Um, remember that the proximal extent is in the circular muscle of the stomach. If you are concerned that you have violated the mucosa in this, you can just suture uh, the initial myotomy, rotate the pylorus into the posterior portion and perform the myotomy there. And then the classic ultrasound findings indicating py uh, pyloric stenosis are um, greater than four millimeter muscle thickness, greater than 17 millimeter channel length, and then um, greater than 14 millimeter all consistent of the, I'm sorry, of diameter consistent with this pyloric stenosis diagnosis. Next, biliary atresia. So um, great way for them to test your knowledge of the Kasai procedure, which is a hepatoportoenterostomy. Um, so biliary atresia progresses eventually into hepatic fibrosis, um, infects about one in 20,000 babies. Um, these, as opposed to other conditions, are not mostly associated with other, other conditions. So 60% of these cases are not associated with other conditions. Um, usually the baby will present with clay-colored stools and jaundice. They'll have failure to thrive, and then they'll have a high conjugated high, uh, bilirubin. Um, you can perform a HIDA um, or an ERCP, and then a liver biopsy usually will show you obstructive causes of stasis. And then, as we said before, the Kasai procedure is the treatment for this. Next. All right, so pancreas issues, um, annular pancreas and pancreatic divism. So an annular pancreas will actually result in incomplete or absent rotation of the ventral pancreatic duct it will cause eventually a duodenal obstruction. Do not resect any portion of the pancreas for this. Um, you can bypass with a gastrojejunostomy or some other option. A pancreatic divism is a failure of the fusion of the dorsal duct and the ventral duct. So it's actually pretty common. 10% of people will actually have an incidental pancreatic divism. A lot of these will actually present as recurrent pancreatitis, um, even in adulthood. So you treat this with a sphincteroplasty through the minor papilla. Next, Mauro. Um, I'm sure that if you've done a pediatric surgery rotation, you have encountered at least one malrotation cases. So this is um, a failure of the 270 degree counterclockwise rotation of the mid gut. So these babies will present with a bilious emesis and failure to thrive. So the greatest way to diagnose this is an upper GI with a small bowel follow through. Um, and it'll show that the duodenum does not cross the midline. The treatment for this is the LADS procedure. So it's an appendectomy division of the LADS bands as well as um, uh, detorsion of the volvulus, really. Next. Intestinal atresias could be multiple. So atresia um, will usually be due to some kind of mesenteric vessel infarct. So these babies will present with uh, inability to tolerate feeds as well as bilious emesis. Um, the jejunum is the most common place, but they can have multiple sites, like I said before. And then often you would have to perform a rectal biopsy at this point to also rule out Hirschsprungs. Remember that the double bubble sign in the x-ray will show a dilated stomach and duodenum. And you can treat these with a bypass procedure of some sort. Next. The Ampsite Smackdown podcast is going live. Reserve your seat for our upcoming live Ampsite review conference. 
Can't travel? On call? No problem. This online conference is recorded so you can catch up anytime. Reserve your spot by visiting us at absitesmackdown.com and selecting latest news for more information. Stenosis is a little bit different. So this is usually a failure of the duodenum to recanalize. And then you see these buzzwords usually with a Down syndrome um, question. And you'll see 20% of patients with Down, I'm sorry, 20% of patients with duodenal stenosis will also have Down syndrome. So similar to the intestinal treasures, these babies are also unable to tolerate feeds and will have bilious emesis um, and will have this double bubble sign on the x-ray. And it's also treated uh, with a bypass procedure of some kind. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown, the only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. I'm phalliseals, so I'm also sure that you've seen these at some point. So this is uh, uh, the umbilical sac not closing appropriately. So the umbilical sac is normally involved. Um usually associated with Beckwith-Weedman syndrome. Remember, that's macroglossia, macrosomia, and omphalocele. Um, so these are more associated with other anatomic uh, anomalies as well. So these have a worse prognosis usually than the gastroschisis, which we'll see in the next slide. Next. So gastroschisis, where the umbilical sac does close, um, but the parambilical hernia occurs. So it's due to the rupture of the umbilical vein in utero. There is no sac over the defect. Organs are kind of just um, out in the environment. So the organs are more likely to be exposed to amniotic fluid. So the bowel and its contents are more stiffened. Um, and then this and the omphalocele are generally actually diagnosed with prenatal ultrasound. Um, it's important once the baby is born to cover the bowel with moist towel. Um, you can also put it in a silo to prevent venous obstruction and mesenteric kinking, and then um, obviously operative repair at some point. Next. Pentology of Cantrell. Um, you may get a question about this, just knowing that there these five things can come together. So cardiac defect, pericardium defect of diaphragmatic pericardium, sternal cleft or portion of sternum is absent, or septum transversum defects, portion of the diaphragm is absent, and then omphalocele is often associated with these. And all five of these together, including the heart, pericardium, sternum, and diaphragmatic issues with omphalocele make up the pentology of Cantrell. Next. Next. Mm. So umbilical hernias, um, very commonly seen, very commonly tested. Remember that it is not a surgical emergency in a baby to close a umbilical hernia. They are often seen, especially in premature infants and especially in African-American children. Um, generally, what we say is if they're not closed by about the age of five, then they should uh, go to the operating room at that point. Generally, not because of anything's going to happen at age five, but usually that's the time where you want to catch a child before they're starting school and have to, to miss school for surgery. Um, so this is a good time to take them to the operating room and fix their umbilical hernia. However, that is um, if they do not have a VP shunt. Um, uh, so go, taking them to the operating room if they have a VP shunt, just because they, you don't want to have shunt contamination as well later on. Next. Okay, so in about 10% of cystic fibrosis patients, they will have meconium ileus. It is a failure of the meconium to pass due to the meconium being quite thickened. So 
if a patient or a baby does not have uh, or has meconium ileus, the best thing and the first thing to do is to decompress their GI system using an NG tube. And then remember to hydrate them. Get a gastroview enema. And they actually, the enema is not only uh, uh, diagnostic, but it could also be very therapeutic. If this fails, unfortunately, the baby will have to go to the operating room for an X-lap and then an enterostomy in order to evacuate this meconium. Next. Hirschsprung's disease, um, very highly tested, RET proto-oncogene association. It is the failure of the neural crest cells to migrate, resulting in the absence of ganglion cells. So this results in, a, in the absence of peristalsis and distal bowel obstruction. So the way to diagnosis is a rectal suction biopsy, which will demonstrate the absence of the ganglion cells. So you can do a one or two stage colectomy with the resection of the involved tissue and then do a pull through procedure um, to continue this anastomosis. Um, may see Hirschsprung colitis and that would actually require the emerging colectomy. Next. And perforate anus. So more commonly in males, um, associated with the Vactral syndrome. Remember we talked about Vactral when we talked about tracheoesophageal fistulas. Um, abnormalities above the levator ani do not exhibit ectopic opening on exam, but may include a fistula with the urinary system. So, um, and also the, um, uh, any, any part of the GU system or even the, the uh, uh, reproductive system. Um, so anomalies below the levator ani will typically show an opening in the males with a fistula to the vagina in the females. And then uh, the sphincter anatomy is actually preserved here. Next. Intussusception. I'm sure you've seen this. Um, one portion of the bowel telescopes into the other. So highest incidence in children ages three months to two years. Intussusception in babies as opposed to adults is not always considered something bad. Um, as a matter of fact, um, it is actually usually due to enlarged pyrus patches. Um, you'll see what's called current jelly stools, and the ileocecal junction is the most common location in babies. First step in managing these is an air contrast enema. You can actually diagnose and treat about 80% of those cases. If recurrence occurs, which is usually in 15% of these, you can try a contrast enema again. I know people who would try a contrast enema or an air contrast enema twice or three times before they finally say, okay, let's time to take them to the operating room. But in 80% of these patients, they'll be able to go home um, after one or two enemas. Next. Meckel's diverticulum, rule of twos. So seen in 2% of the population found two feet from the ileocecal valve, uh, 2% have symptoms and presentation is typically by the age of two. Remember that a Meckel's will have one of two types of mucosa, gastric or pancreatic, um, usually diagnosed with the Meckel's scan, which will show you the Meckel's with gastric mucosa, not with the pancreatic mucosa. Um, and then usually three quarter of these are diagnosed before the baby or the child reaches age 10. Um, so in children who present with appendicitis, always have in the back of your mind that the baby or the child might not have appendicitis, might, might actually have a Meckel's diverticulum. Next. Pectus excavatum. Um, so this is what is treated with the what's called either the NUS or Ravage procedure. So this is a sternal and anterior chest wall deformity. These children will have decreased lung volumes, obviously because of the there's less space for the lungs to expand because the sternum and the anterior chest have sunken in. 
Um, basically, you have to look at them and make the diagnosis. So the NUS procedure is the insertion of a bar behind the sternum and anterior to pericardium to kind of push out the anterior chest wall. Whereas, whereas the RAVAGE procedure is an osteotomy of the sternum and then cartilage resection. Next. Um, a couple of GU issues. So cryptorchidism, uh, very common. So boys, one third of patients will acquire some kind of testicular involution by about two years if their um, testes have not descended. Testicular torsion is an emergency. So um, these babies will have, or these, these children will have loss of ipsilateral cremasteric reflex. Um, the treatment is not only detorsion or cupexy of the involved testes, but also the other one uh, because the bell clapper deformity may be present bilaterally. Next. All right, neuroblastoma. So a couple of tumors just to wrap up. Um, so neuroblastomas typically arise from the adrenal gland, from the neurocrest cells. These are the most common extracranial solid tumors in children less than two years old. Um, age of diagnosis is actually very important for the prognosis because of the baby is uh, diagnosed before the age of one. The tumors are often lower stage and spontaneously regress. However, as the baby grows older, for example, after the age of one, these tumors are much more advanced and prognosis is actually a lot worse. Next. Um, Wilms tumors are another common tumor that they love to test. So it's the most common solid tumor in children older than two years old. Um, and those are associated with Beckwith, Weedman, Wager, and Dennis Drash syndromes. Um, they are the most common malignant renal lesion of childhood. Approximately 10% of them can be bilateral, and they're usually diagnosed between the ages of two or three. Um, the worst prognosis is the sarcomatous or anaplastic types, and then usually in about 90% of cases, actually, a nephrectomy generally will cure these, um, these children of this Wilms tumor. Um, this tumor is generally asymptomatic. As a matter of fact, the most common story you'll hear is that mom was bathing baby, and felt a weird mass in their um, uh, costochondral space or their retroperitoneal space and will come in asking what this mass is and it's usually a Wilms tumor at this point. Next. Hepatoblastoma is usually in males, uh, usually less than three years old. Um, because they have HCG production, they might result in precocious puberty. Um, cisplastin and then doxorubicin are usually the adjuvant uh, or, ne or neoadjuvant therapy, and then resection is the ultimate uh, management of these. Mostly curable, about 75% of the cases are in fact curable. And then again, associated with other anomalies, including familial adenomatous polyposis and Beckwith-Meadman syndrome. Next. Lastly, a hemangioma. So hemangiomas are pretty common, actually. They grow up very quickly in the first six to 12 months of life um, and then go away. Um, if it's getting in the way, let's say on the eyelid and it's getting in the way of function, or if it persists past the age of eight, you can actually treat them with an oral steroid. You can also use a laser or resect if um, they are really growing or not shrinking or just getting in the way of normal life. All right, question time. The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. Question number one. A 10-year-old boy presents the clinic for evaluation of an inguinal hernia. History is notable for cystic fibrosis, congenital polydactyly, prior cholecystectomy for gallstones, gastrostomy tube placement for nutritional supplementation and new diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Of these comorbid conditions, which increases the lifetime risk of inguinal hernia formation? 
Um, so this kid's got a lot going on, but the most common thing for him in his case that would actually increase his inguinal hernia formation is cystic fibrosis. Next. Yeah, cystic fibrosis. Next. So a three-week-old infant presents with a four-day history of progressive non-bilious vomiting. She's hungry following emesis. Her abdomen is non-tender, mucous membranes are dry, and she does not cry tears. So she is pretty dehydrated. What is the most likely finding in this child? Next. Yeah, so remember this is the, um, uh, the olive sign. So there's going to be a small mass in the upper abdomen. It's usually pyloric stenosis. And then remember this, this child usually will have um, uh, electrolyte abnormalities that will require you to resuscitate first before going to the operating room. Next. A nine-month-old child is evaluated in the emergency for irritability or feeling intolerance. An ileocolic intussusception is identified on ultrasound and reduced hydrostatically. Afterwards, she is clinically asymptomatic, afebrile, and well hydrated. What is the next step, next best step in management of this child with reduced intussusception? So remember, the next best step questions um, can really get you. So this patient clearly has an intussusception that we were able to reduce, and she seems to be um, doing very well. So what do you do next? So next slide. Yeah, so you're going to observe in the emergency for about four hours. If she's doing well, start feeding. And if she or if the child eats well and is doing fine after that, then discharge home. Obviously, if there's a recurrence, which like we said before, occurs in about 15% of these kids, um, then you can try the hydrostatic or air contrast enema again and see if that helps. Next. So after an infant has undergone repair of a gastroschisis or emphalocele, this should be monitored for which of the following. Next. So adequate urine output of ventilation. If you remember the talk about trauma, you'll remember something called abdominal compartment syndrome. So remember these uh, babies have not had their um, abdominal organs inside their abdomen. So after repair of these gastroschisis or emphalocele,s um, putting their abdominal organs back into their abdomen might increase their chance of abdominal compartment syndrome. And you would actually see that very quickly with inadequate urine output because remember you are compressing the IVC and decreasing uh, flow to the kidneys, as well as as you're increasing pressure in the abdomen, it becomes more difficult to ventilate. So adequate urine output and ventilation, this is a third order question that is asking you to first diagnose what the issue is, and then second diagnose um, or identify the symptomatology leading to that diagnosis. Next. Thanks so the last question. So a 2200 gram infant is diagnosed with necrotizing enterocolitis. After initiation of antibiotic therapy, intravenous fluid resuscitation, and bowel decompression, the infant continues to have a metabolic acidosis and episodic bradycardia. An exploratory laparotomy is performed. What is the goal of operative therapy in this infant? Next. So they did a great job giving you a lot of details about this infant um, and about all the things that are going on with them and about the most likely scenario in a necrotizing enterocolitis um, patient. So. At this point, um, the goal is damage control. You are trying to prevent ongoing sepsis by removing what you believe will continue the sepsis, removing um, the bowel that appears to be ischemic. You are not there to establish continuity. You are not there to actually take out all disease bowel, anything that appears not healthy, because remember, you want to preserve as much bowel as possible because you don't know what else will have to come out in the next surgeries. So the initial operative therapy is to take out only what appears to be very diseased in order to prevent ongoing sepsis.
And I think that's it for our pediatrics talk. All right, guys, this actually wraps up our second day of AppSite Smackdown. Um, we will see you again here tomorrow. Thank you so much to Jessica and Dr. Kashmir. Um, you guys have done a phenomenal job. Get more AppSite content in your daily routine. Visit us on Instagram at daily.appsite.fact, on Facebook at AppSite Smackdown, or LinkedIn at AppSite Smackdown. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place you listen to your favorites. Don't forget our YouTube channel, AppSite Smackdown.